My name is Colin Bay. I'm on the, the physical chemistry lab here at Oxford. And it's uh, a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today. One of the themes that you'll be picking up in this, in this week here is that chemistry is getting smaller. Now, I mean, chemistry was always small in one sense. I mean, it's molecules and molecules are little. And, and nowadays, we call chemistry nanotechnology because nanotechnology gets money and chemistry doesn't. But one of the things you really will get is that actually chemistry is beginning to look at much smaller things. I think you'll have had a talk yesterday from Professor Green uh, telling you about the world's smallest crystals and we're going about bucky tubes and bucky balls and things like that. And tomorrow, um, you go to talk on uh, what you might call, what now calls, again, not the buzzword, bio-nanotechnology. That is, how to use individual biological molecules on surfaces to try and do clever things. And technology itself is militarizing all the time. And when we think of a small computer nowadays, you tend to think of something that's a bit like my, my laptop, you know, sort of about 30 centimeters on site. There are now proposals, um, and they're not they're just crazy proposals, but people like to put some thought. So reduce the size of that by about a million fold. So the entire computer will be about the size of a grain of sand. It'll have an integral power supply. It'll communicate by wireless technology. Um, it'll be so cheap that you can put them in aerosol cans and you can spray them on things. So essentially, you can coat a, 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 a person or, or, or an object and have these as tiny computers communicating with each other, communicating with each other, communicating with the outside, and feeding back information. So these, these ideas sound crazy, but they probably will be realized within, within, within a few years. So everything is getting smaller. And one of the consequences of things getting smaller is that surfaces become more and more important. I'll just give you an example. If you were to take just a teaspoon of a typical modern catalyst, then the area of the surfaces of all the tiny particles in that catalyst would be about the size of a football pitch, and that's just in a teaspoon. As you get down to these, these sizes, as you'll have seen from the sort of crystals Professor Green was talking about, most of your atoms, most of your molecules, are now at surfaces. The ratio of atoms at surfaces compared to those in the bulk starts becoming quite high. And the consequence of that is that surface properties start dominating the overall response of the system. Now, I'm going to be talking about surfaces today, but I'm not going to be talking about surfaces at a micro level. Okay? So I'll be looking at phenomena that occur at the macro level, macro being anything in my in those terms from a micron up. A micron is about um, less millimeters, so about a fiftieth of the width of the human hair. So I'm looking that that's macro, okay? Micro is <laughs> so smaller than that. So we'll be looking at things that happen at that level. As a consequence, we'll be looking at a phenomena that have actually been observed for a very long time. I uh, think the title here, so the earliest uh, literature reference, if you can call it that, um, to the effects, sort of effects we're talking about today is Solomon in about 950 BC. And that would probably, I suspect, be the oldest reference you'll have. I hope in any of the talks this week, I usually try and win that battle anyway. So, talking about, I like to talk about surface tension. And I guess the first thing to do about quantum blue is just to um, just keep trying to explain what surface tension is. Not that one, that's the whole one. I was raiding my, my, my kids' rooms trying to find balloons very long ago, some of the old ones. I mean, the simplest analogy of a surface tension is to think that any liquid, and indeed a solid as well as we'll see, has got a skin on it. And the skin is rather like the rubber in a balloon. And if you actually want to blow up a balloon, you know you have to put some puff in, because this skin is under, is under tension. And if I were to take a sharp object, um, and if I were to, as you know, well, we all know how do I take a sharp object, okay, if the balloon bursts, because there's a lot of pressure, there's tension in the skin, just trying to pull it apart and trying to get it back to a small size rather than a big one. 
So surface tension can be thought of as a force in a surface. And we just, um, I'm actually going to, I'm going to violate one of the um, fundamental rules of talking to mixed audiences, and that's not to use any equation. Uh, but I don't want to, and this is often said that for every equation you have, you're, you, half your audience falls asleep, which means there'll probably be about one of you uh, awake by the end. But I'm not, I'm going to put a few equations in anyway, because I want to get across the idea of physical chemistry, uh, a very simple one, by the way. The physical chemistry uh, is actually a quantitative subject. And that when you're actually trying to describe physical phenomena, it's no good to do it just in hand-waving terms. You actually need, ultimately, to be able to write down equations and take hard numbers out. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily something you want to take too many notes on, but it's just, um, just to try and illustrate what I'm talking about. So a surface tension, if you want to make things quantitative, now I'm going to use the label Greek letter sigma, so S for surface is a sort of uh, uh, a mnemonic. Um, surface tension can be thought of as a force on a unit length in the surface. So we can imagine that we have got, say, a wire frame, and we've got a, a surface in it, see it's liquid in blue, or we imagine we see some sort of barrier along the edge, and we're going to measure the force that this surface, or if it's a wire, it could be two surfaces, one in the front and one in the back, is exerting on this barrier. So the surface is going to try and contract, rather like the balloon will contract when you pop it, and we have to apply a force against the surface to keep this barrier in the same place. And the surface tension is defined as the force we have to apply per unit length of, of, that, of that barrier. Now, I'd like to try and demonstrate that these forces exist in, in real surfaces as well as in, as well as in balloons. So, just kind of... Here. Water has a liquid of fairly high surface tension. And I'm going to take, I'm going to take a, this is just a thread, I'm just going to wax it with some nick wax, walking boots, just so it doesn't get all soggy when I put it in the water. Now, this is going to be my hypothetical line, uh, or rather, my hypothetical line can become a real line here. So we'll just pop this down on the, I'm have to do is just make sure that that's actually sitting on the surface. Okay, right. So I'm going to try and convince you that that actually has got a force acting on it, but it doesn't seem to be doing very much as it sits there. And the reason for that is quite simple, because although there are surface forces acting on it, they're acting in both directions. So the water is pulling this side of the thread up, and it's pulling that side of the thread downwards as you look at it. And because the surface tension is the same everywhere, this is a theme we'll come back to, because again, the surface tension is the theme everywhere, the forces on that are exactly balanced and it just sits there. And if you think about that, it has to do that, because if this were to move around all on its own, you say, where does the energy come from? You can't take a system which is at equilibrium and actually get this thing to, to, to move, that's giving it energy, without putting some energy in. But if we, we do it very, sim very simply, we can actually change the surface tension on the two sides of that thread. And what I'll just do is I'll just take a, another liquid, this is a decanol, so this is a, an alcohol, 10 carbons, and a hydroxy group. And it's got a much lower surface tension than has water. So what I'll do is I'll just literally just touch a tiny amount on here, and that should give you an imbalance in the surface tensions. And immediately, now that the forces are different from the two sides, the, 
the thread, the thread moves. Okay? So what I'm just trying to do is just have a very simple illustration. It's to show that the surface tension is a real force. And that, but in order to see it, we actually have to have an imbalance in the surface tension. At least when we do it on a, on a flat surface. We'll see that's not necessarily true uh, if we go to other surfaces. And it's going to be useful, though, to think of surface tension not only um, as, as a force, but also as an energy. As we think of how much work we would have to do to create this area of blue surface, we imagine we have the barrier, first of all, right over the left-hand side, and we're going to pull this barrier across, we have to do some work. Now, from your GCSEs, or from uh, the older people here from low grades, um, well, remember that, that uh, work is force times distance. Because the force we're going to have to put in is going to be sigma times the length of this barrier, sigma times L. And the distance we're going to move it is d. So the work is sigma times L times d. But L times d is just the area we've made. Okay? So the work we need to do is just the surface tension times the area. So another way of thinking about the surface tension is as actually an energy, energy and work are the same thing really, per unit area, at least in this context. Yeah. So we can think of it, so it's, it's slightly schizophrenic, we think of it as a force. If we think about a fair solid surface, it's often easier to think of it, think of it as, being, as being an energy. And one of the consequences of, of a surface having an excess energy is that a system, given a chance, will try and make its surface as small as possible. Because for every bit of surface you create, it takes energy. And there are very simple examples of this. If you take something like a raindrop, and a raindrop will be, will be a sphere. And why is it a sphere? If you take a fixed volume of liquid, then the way to make the smallest amount of surface is to make it spherical. And the presence of gravity, that will begin to, when it is on the surface, that will begin to distort, because that's another force you're putting on. But just on its own, a liquid drop will be spherical. Similarly, small crystals are unstable compared to large crystals. And one of the biggest, um, or a large um, uh, application of this, or, or, or rather problem with this, is in, is, in, is in ice cream. I mean, good ice cream has got very small ice crystals in it. Um, but if you actually store ice cream for a long time, those ice crystals will do something called Oswald ripening. That is, the small ones will get smaller, and the big ones will get bigger, because they're trying to eliminate surface. So you imagine if I said I had this teaspoon of catalyst, okay? That's the surface area of the same size as a football pitch. If it was all of a little cube, it would have a surface area of about 10 square centimeters, okay? So it can reduce its energy a lot by going from very small particles to bigger particles. And so you have to try and stop things like ice cream, pharmaceutical formulations, uh, personal products, all these things from going, undergoing Oswald ripening and, and the crystals getting bigger and bigger. And there's all sorts of weird things that used to do this. So one of the things we've been studying for a long time is, is are called antifreeze anti proteins. Does anyone cross these? These things? These things that, um, yeah, one, one person has. Um, these are actually quite ubiquitous in nature, but the, the nicest examples are in, are in fish, things like the Baltic cod and Antarctic flounder, which live in seawater, which is below the freezing point of their blood. Now, that seems like a pretty bad evolutionary strategy <laughs> to live in. I mean, it's pretty good for the fishing industry because you just need to scoop all the frozen fish off the top of the sea and you float to the surface. But it's not much good if you're a fish because you don't really want your blood to freeze. So, they've got these, these proteins which actually stop Oswald ripening. So very, very small crystals of ice form, these proteins are believed to bind to the crystals of ice and stop them growing any further. And so if you could, if you could take these antifreeze proteins and put them in, in ice cream, which people are trying to think about for quite a long time, it doesn't make very nice ice cream, but they work on it, um, then you can actually stop this Oswald ripening process. And then you can stop the, 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 the ice cream getting gritty 
and course and course of time. The only problem is in, with, with, with modern regulation, you have to put a big red star on the front and say it contains genetically engineered fish blood protein. And that doesn't go down very well for consumers. <laughs> so, I lost track of where I was now. Oh, yeah. So, say that, that we think of, of, of surface tension as, as a sort of a, as an energy uh, as well as, as a force. Now, um, is it? What sort of numbers are we talking about? And the first sign, surface tension seems to be a really puny force. Okay, for pure water, the surface tension is 72 millinewtons per meter. Okay, it's a force per unit length. If you imagine a 10 centimeter long piece of string, or a thread, I'll write my hand there, a bit longer, the force on that would ever be 0.1 of a meter times 0.072, 7 millinewtons. Okay, now 7 millinewtons is about the weight of a large P. Okay, that's not a very big force. And it's right, so well, these are really rather small forces, hardly of any importance. But it turns out that surfaces are very thin. And so that's, that force is acting on a very small area. So if we imagine that, that rather than thinking of it being a line, you think of the surface having some thickness, and for water, that thickness is about half a nanometer. Okay? It's about two water molecules wide. Okay? And then say, well, what does that force work out in terms of the pressure? Okay, so pressure is a force divided by an area. So our force is 7 millinewtons. Our area here, well, it's, we're going to have a unit length here, 1, which is a force per unit length. Think it's half a nanometer. And that works out about 10 to the 8 pascals, uh, which converts it into perhaps more familiar units, 1,000 atmospheres of pressure. Okay. Now, what's 1,000 atmospheres? Well, 1,000 atmospheres is roughly the pressure you'd have at the bottom of the deepest trench off the Philippines in the Pacific Ocean, 10,000 meters down on the seafloor. So although the force itself is very small, because it's acting on a very, very thin sliver of surface, the pressures involved are enormous. As a consequence of that, these sorts of pressures are not only enough to actually break chemical bonds, they're certainly big enough to pull apart um, aggregates and molecules that are organized on a large amount of scale. And from that point of view, they can really be quite destructive. And that's why, for example, proteins, one of the reasons why proteins often denature if they come to a surface because they've got a complicated secondary structure, and as the air water interface, these surface tension forces will essentially pull them into a different, lower energy structure. So that's um, figured as, 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 a, as, a, as a force. Now, what are the consequences of these, these forces? Well, one of them is to do with gas bottles. Um, and it's equation number two or three. Um, I think with a gas bubble in water, or indeed in any liquid, then you get extra pressure inside the bubble. And the reason for that is that this, we said that you've got, you've got an <coughs> excess energy associated with the surface of the bubble, and that's trying to make itself as small as possible. So it's pulling in, rather like the skin of the balloon, pulls in and makes the pressure uh, inside the balloon higher than the pressure outside, while the balloons don't blow themselves up spontaneously. And one of the features of the pressure, this was a, uh, reported independently by Young and Laplace um, in the early part of the 19th century, is that the pressure depends on one over the radius. And again, using a balloon as, a, as, as an exemplar, we can sort of demonstrate this doesn't always work very well, but we'll try. I'll try this, I'm just going to put different amounts of air in these two balloons. We'll start with a small one. Okay. Now you can see. You have the England balloons, so you can get these cheap now. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so we put it in two balloons. I mean, you're, 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 what you would sort of intuitively think is that um, the more air you put in the balloon, the higher the pressure would be. And therefore, if we connect these two balloons, the air will go from here and here to here until the two balloons are the same size. So you can actually do it. You find that the opposite happens. The small balloon gets smaller, and the big balloon gets bigger. And the reason is for pressure is because it depends inversely on the radius of the, of the bubble, or in this case, the balloon. So the smaller the, the, the bubble is, the smaller the balloon, the harder the pressure. Actually, as the experience kind of tells you that, if you've learned about the balloon, what's the hardest bit to do? It's actually the hardest bit to get it started. That's going to be the most pressure. Once you've got over the first bit, then actually it becomes relatively easy. But this has some consequences, because let's imagine we actually want to make a bubble in a gas. How are we going to do it? I'm oh, sorry, bubble in a liquid. How are we going to do it? Well, first thing we have to do is we have to somehow squeeze some, you know, pull some molecules away in order to make a little void, put some gas in it, and that void will then get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, let's just say, how big does this void have to be to start with? Well, let's say we're going to take out 100, 100 water molecules, okay? Or that, that order, make a little bubble. Well, that's going to give us a bubble that's something of the order of, say, a nanometer across. But what's the pressure? Inside the bubble is a nanometer across, where we just plug the numbers into the plastic equation, we put in our surface tension of water, we put in a nanometer, and you get a pressure of about one and a half thousand atmospheres. Okay? You know, that the pressure inside a very small bubble is extremely high. And that has some, has some consequences. Can I just summarize the channel? Some of you probably drink this stuff, disgusting, I know, but seven up, okay, with all the other fizzy drinks. It's a carbonated beverage, okay? So what is it? Well, you've got carbon dioxide in here under pressure. Why is it that it doesn't all come out? And I, well, some of it probably will, because this came in my, in my bicycle hand here, so this could be a bit messy. Okay, I mean, if it's a carbonated beverage, I mean, that, that contains there, you see the bubbles, it contains um, carbon dioxide at a pressure that is well above what it would be at equilibrium. And you all know that if you leave this for long enough, it'll go completely flat. The CO2 will disequilibrate with the air. Now, why is it the CO2 doesn't come out? Well, the CO2 has to form bubbles. And if you actually look carefully at this, and, I mean, you'll, you'll probably all be familiar with this if you actually look at it yourself, is that the bubbles always end up starting on surfaces. And occasionally, and it was particularly well champagne, um, which some of you may drink, um, that you'll see bubbles start in the middle. And if they start in the middle, what you'll notice is there's a stream of bubbles all coming from the same place. So they're not just starting randomly. There's something in there that's starting the bubbles. And the fact is, if you just take a pure liquid with nothing, no bubbles called no nucleation sites, nothing to start off, bubbles simply won't form. You put almost essentially as much gas as you like right there. You put it takes up to a couple of thousand atmospheres pressure of CO2 in there, and it'll stay there. And it can't get out because it can't make this bubble to start. Okay? Because making small bubbles is extremely difficult. Now, if we put in something to, to start bubbles, and as you know, bubbles, um, oops, get that up um, then the bubbles will form very, very rapidly. So the carbon dioxide is in there, it wants to get out. But he can't do it. And by putting in something like, in this case, salt, something which has got some, some essentially defects on the surface, little holes, pits, cracks, places where it's easier for a bubble to start forming, then you can release that CO2. Okay. 
So let's just have some, a few illustrations of, of a little bit of background on surface tension. And how can we as chemists control surface tension? Well, the, one of the ways we can do it is by using things called surfactants. Um, surfactants is a contraction of surface active agent. So if you take blue letters, you can extract surfactant from that. And basically, these are molecules which go to surfaces. They can go to a, example, the surface of water. They can also go to solid liquid surfaces, say, between, uh, uh, between a piece of cloth and water. And they change the surface tension. Okay, they change the surface free energy. And the characteristic ones that work in water have got, they've got a sort of steady character. They've got a hydrophilic head. Hydrophilic means water loving from the Greek. So that likes being water. And that's often charged, or maybe lots of highly polar species, lots of, of, of oxygens in it. And they have a hydrophobic tail. Hydrophobic means water hating, and that's usually um, a hydrocarbon, so CH2s, or a fluorocarbon, the CF2s. And so this bit likes to be in water, that bit likes to be out of water. So these things go to the surface, where this bit can get out of the water, and this bit can stay in the water. And the characteristics of of surfactants are sort of shown in these two really highly detailed, complicated graphs here. Um, basically, as you increase the concentration of the surfactant, the surface tension goes down. Another way of thinking about it is that if you increase the amount of this, we use a capital gamma for that, the number of molecules per unit area of the surface, then the surface tension also goes down. Okay? So these things, as you increase the concentration, the surface tension will go down, and if you increase the amount at a surface, the surface tension will go down. And these two things are actually linked, and there's a, by a chap, an American mathematician called Gibbs, linked these two ideas in the late 19th century. Um, it's what probably some of the fundamental papers ever published in terms of that. Okay, so we've got, we have got these, these, these surface active agents as a way of controlling surface tension. Now the presence or the existence of these things is literally vital for all of you. Now, vital is a word that is grossly misused nowadays. Everything is vital. Vital comes from the word vita, life. Okay, so something is vital if it is life-giving or if it, it is essential for life. And so factors are essential for the life of every single one of you. Did any of you, when you were born, you may not remember it very well, but did any of you suffer respiratory distress syndrome? Fairly not uncommon. Respiratory distress syndrome is a, is a, is a problem in newborn babies who can't take their first breath. Now, if you think what we're just doing here with, 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 the, um, with the seminar, we are trying to create very small air bubbles in a liquid. Now, when a baby is inside its mother's womb, there's no air in its lungs. Okay, when it's born, it's going to take its first breath. Right? So what you're essentially doing is you're trying to take a liquid-filled sac, the lungs, and you're trying to fill it with lots of tiny, tiny bubbles and tubes of air. Now, we just said that you need here, our simple calculation says for water, you need about 2,000 atmospheres of pressure to do that. Now, your poor little baby can't give 2,000 atmospheres of pressure to the lungs. I mean, you or I might get one or two. A baby hasn't got a chance of giving 2,000 atmospheres. So how can a baby ever take its first breath? How can it ever create that huge surface area of air-liquid surface in its lungs? And the answer is that the body has developed mechanisms to do that. This, they've got suspicious, a special set of surfactants. These are a mixture of lipids and proteins. No one really understands how they work yet. They've been studied extensively for many years. And the consequence is that they, they, they reduce the effective surface tension of water to zero. Now, the pressure you need is the surface tension applied by the radius. If you make the surface tension go to zero, then you can breathe. 
because you don't have to just have this enormous pressure to create all this surface. Quite how it does it does it is not fully understood. Now, babies who are who have got some imbalance in those lipids find it can't breathe. And the, and the therapy basically is fairly crude. You stick a syringe, more or less, into lungs or an aerosol, you spray lung surfactant into the lungs. Okay? So you repackage, put in the surfactant, it should be there, but it isn't. And then the baby is able to breathe. So all of you, I mean, this is literally vital, because without these, uh, none of you would, be, would, would ever have been able to take, take your first breath. Let's just look at a few applications. This is a picture, it's like running out of focus, but it's not me, of some water droplets on, on leaves. Now, when you put a droplet of liquid on a surface, then it will form generally, it will form some sort of lens like that, and a contact angle, theta, and this contact angle is, is, is essentially the angle made of this, what's called the contact line here, which hits the drop, hits the surface. So if you imagine a straight line on the surface, we could tangent to the drop and put some angle feet. And that angle can be controlled by the addition of surfactants. You might as well explain why I might want to do that in a minute. This is discovered by Thomas Young in 1805. And he, um, and, um, he wrote it, they didn't use equations in those days, so he wrote it all on longhand. And then uh, a Frenchman called Dupre rediscovered it in 1865. So the French call it the Dupre equation, uh, and the British call it the Young's equation. Um, but Young was about 60 years earlier. And what it tells us is that if this droplet is simply sitting on the surface, then all the forces have to be in balance. It's an idea I think you're all familiar with, that in mechanical equilibrium, the forces and objects all have to cancel out, otherwise the object will accelerate. So if we simply add up the forces at the surface, we have a student to the solid vapor interface here, that's along that way. You've got a force due to the solid liquid interface, you've got a force due to the liquid vapor interface, and they each act along the surfaces. And if we add those three forces up, they're all like elastic bands around the point, then they have to come to zero. There's also some stresses in the solids that I haven't drawn. So if we add these up in the horizontal plane, then we say that the solid vapor surface tension has to equal the solid liquid plus the component of the liquid vapor that's in the plane. So that's sigma LV times cos theta. So this is the equation that Thomas Young came up with, um, which then allows you to compute a thermodynamic contact angle. But it also allows you to change it, because if we've got surfactants, we can actually play around with the surface tensions at the air liquid and the solid liquid interface. And so we can add surfactants, we can reduce, if you like, the strength of both these forces. If we reduce the strength of those forces, this angle has to get smaller, so we still satisfy the Young's equation. So what we do is we actually add surfactants, and that allows droplets to spread out. And this is very important in a whole series of, of fields. And for example, in, in crop spray, Many, many plants, I should have brought a picture along actually, but that the surfaces of a typical leaf contains a thin waxy layer, continuous layer of wax, hydrocarbon wax, and on top of that, there are lots of tiny little crystals. And the consequence is that if you put water on that, water will generally run off. And you see this very clearly on things like brassicas are particularly good, cabbage leaves, young cabbage leaves, and the water will, set, will, will essentially form a, like a marble-like bead and just run right off the surface. So if you actually want to spray a cabbage, with a pesticide, whether it's an organic one or inorganic one, you've got a problem because the water just runs off. You're carrying the pesticide with it. So what you need to do is you need to add surfactants to the system to get this contact angle down to make the liquid spread out on the surface so you can actually deliver the, 
didn't deliver the pesticide and the fungicide effectively to the plant. You might also want to make these contact angles big. So, for example, if you're in the detergent industry and you want to remove oily deposits from clothes, whether it's your, your, uh, from uh, mechanical oil or from people, uh, you want to try and make these droplets become, become little spheres and be carried away into solution. So what you do there is you try and make this one small, okay, and that then makes this, the contact angle getting big. And that's what you do with the detergent that's in a washing powder. Okay? That you actually control these different integration tensions so the surface tension of the oil water interface causes this droplet to pull away from the surface and be separate. So it's quite important to control these things for practical applications. Just give you a couple more. Now, this say we're going, you know, life is going micro. I don't know if you can see that or not. Let me just take it from you. This is a picture of an inkjet. This is a, an ink, I mean, I think you're all familiar with inkjet printers um, as, a, as a desktop way of printing out information. And this, is, this is shows a droplet or a stream of droplets coming out of an inkjet printer. This one has been formed, here's another one, here's the net. These are typically nowadays about 50 microns across. They print at rates of about 100 kilohertz, so 100,000 droplets a second. Um, Typical one of these heads has to be able to print at least 100 billion droplets before it fails. And they probably want to get that up by another factor of 10, ultimately. Um, and the applications of this as a as technology go well beyond simply um, a desktop printer. Um, in commercial printing, these things may cost several million dollars. They may be three meters wide with thousands of print heads. And they may be able to print onto a, a web moving underneath it up to 10 meters per second. They can be used for industrial printing. They're also being used now to print DNA arrays. They're being used to make electronic circuits. They're being used to try and f uh, for metal forming, for trying to design and can construct very small metallic objects. There's an alternative technology. But as I, as I mentioned at this start, this, um, these are very small droplets. And as droplets get small, surface tension becomes more and more important. This is a fluid dynamics simulation that's taken off the Flow 3D website, which shows what happens uh, as you pulse the liquid, as I said, this is typically at about 100,000 droplets a second out of the nozzle. And you can see that this droplet comes out and it's got this long tail behind. This thing, remember, wants to be a sphere. You can see that after a while, it sort of becomes spherical. But the surface tension is determining how this thin neck of liquid breaks and whether or not this tail ends up as a separate satellite droplet, where the satellite, you see the satellite's trying to form there, here, there it's just getting yellow, but it's getting sucked into the droplet. Now very often it doesn't get sucked in, it simply gets left as another little droplet in between the big droplets, and that's a, that's a disaster if you try to do good printing, because those droplet, little droplets, you can't control them, just go everywhere. You want to be able to control these, probably to a precision of, you want to have them over, be able to shoot them over a distance of several centimeters, and have them land with a precision of about one-tenth of the width of a human hair. That's what you're sort of aiming at. And to do that, you have to know exactly, exactly what's going on at every moment of this process. And that comes down to controlling surface tension, controlling surface tension on the microsecond time scale. And that, at the moment, is really not known how to do that. It's all empirical uh, experimentation. Here's another example where we have to control surface tension. This is a picture of some pictures from Kodak. Um, Kodak, as you're aware, are a major manufacturer of film, uh, although they're not made for very much longer because <laughs> a few years' time they won't be using film anymore. But um, 
photographic film has got anything up to about 10 layers of liquid on top of each other. The liquid, in the, at least in, in, the, in the Kodak process, the liquid pours off uh, the edge of a slide, and then drops down onto a photographic web that's spinning on a drum underneath. And this is just a picture of what happens as it hits the drum. There's a sort of heel here, the web's moving in this direction, and it gets, and it gets essentially gets stretched um, and, 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 and thins as it goes. And you've got to control the surface tension at every one of, between every one of these liquid layers to get, to get the thing stable. If you don't, the whole thing just ends up being like, not like Scotch Brock. Everything just gets scrambled. And that's taking a lot of technology. And to give you some idea, again, with the scale of these things, these are, are several meters wide. The web goes, about, again, about 10 meters per second. Any faster, you start get, getting air and prey at the heel here. So that's the limit at the moment. Um, and you then, so you're printing, you're printing film, uh, say about three meters wide, ten meters per second. That means, that, and then you slice it up lengthwise and crosswise, and it means that about six of these can produce the entire world supply of photographic film. I mean, yeah, because they're running, they're producing literally thousands of films per second as this stuff spins, uh, as this web spins on But as I say, uh, in a few years' time, um, this will be uh, essentially a, a dead, a dead technology. But the same, although the same ideas are important in printing on, on things like on like paper, coating papers. So, just wanted to give one more example of where surface tension is important. This is a microfluidic circuit. I don't know if you can see that someone's hand. This is how chemistry is being increasingly being done now and will be done in the future. You tend to think of chemistry as being done in flasks and torques and things like that. But this is, this is the chemistry of the future. Chemistry is going to be done in these tiny, tiny channels. Um, these are typically nowadays about 100 microns across. They're gradually getting smaller. And the, you introduce liquids. I'm not quite, I mean, not quite exactly what this particular one does, but uh, you normally have a number of reservoirs. You use either uh, pressure or electrical forces. Um, or indeed, you can now use things like light as well to move the liquids around in those little tubes. And so you have one region here, one region here, and you bring them together, and they react, and you take them down, and then you can split them. And there are technologies for essentially doing all of what you might call normal chemistry, and that includes separations, crystallizations, the whole lot can be done on the micron length scale in, in these tiny little circuits, where you, in principle, can have complete control over all the, the parameters of the reaction. And you do the same reaction over and over again, uh, millions and billions of times, with, precise, with, with, with precisely the same result every time. And so you say, well, hang on, what happens if I want to make a kilogram or something? Well, it's easy. You just have 100,000 of these side by side. I mean, that sounds, I mean, that's easy to do nowadays with modern photography. You just make it. And it so if you start on one side, everything's controlled, and down the other, the other end. But for research, um, these are fantastic because you can do thousands of reactions at one go. If I was seeing a reading proposal yesterday that was, was had a microfluidic uh, um, proposal that would do one billion reactions per day on a chip. One billion reactions. Now think how long it takes you to do that in the lab. Okay? It'll take a while. We're talking about a way of doing one billion reactions a day on a single chip. Now, I mean, how you actually analyze the data that comes out is, is an entirely different question. But, that's, but here we are getting down to very, very small uh, dimensions, liquids flowing, and, and more than one liquid often. So you've got drop liquids and liquids. You've got to know what the surfaces are doing. You've got to control the surface tension because you don't, you're dead. And in fact, the sort of effects I'm going to be talking about next actually become very important these microfluidic systems. Okay, now I haven't actually said uh, anything yet about either Solomon, well not Michael Solomon, or anything about Marion Gurney. Uh, I just want to try and demonstrate where they come into the picture. 
So we find conservative tension is a static, an equilibrium phenomenon. That's what Young's equation was telling us about the telling us about equilibrium. Um, but I just want to try and show that actually conservative tension can actually move things around as well. So So we thought about surface tension as being a force acting a surface. If I just take this, I'm just put a drop of ethanol on the surface of water. Now, we have to make different surface tensions, as we saw when we put the ethanol on the floor. I'm just, now, the difference here is I just put a little bit of water in. So I just put a, I'm just going to put a single drop of ethanol. It's not just the surface that is moving. What you've seen is that where the ethanol has been, the whole liquid has pulled back and we're left with a dry spot. And the reason for that is something called viscosity. Now, viscosity is a concept I think you're all familiar with, even if it's not a term that you've used. I mean, if you actually stir a cup of tea, when you move the, the spoon around, the tea moves with it, otherwise you wouldn't stir it. And you also know that if you try and stir honey rather than tea, that it's much harder work to stir the honey than it is to stir the tea. And what that is, the reason for that is that when you try and move the surface, in that case the teaspoon, the liquid moves with it. And the reason it moves with it is because of something called viscosity. And the more viscous a material is, the greater the force you have to apply to move it. So what we did here, as, as, as this dissolves, the water should be put back in again, so therefore evaporates and dissolves. Um, so what we did here was we put a force on the surface Okay, we change the surface tension, and we saw how that moves the thread around. But because the surface is attached to the bulb by viscosity, then the liquid moves as well. And that is what is known as an Marangoni effect. After this chap, uh, as you can see from German, he's, he's, he's Italian. Um, he was a professor of physics in, in, in Florence. There are probably some people in, in, in the audience who can read this. And in my German, I'm afraid, isn't up to it without a, uh, without a dictionary. But I did get a German to translate it for me. And this describes an experiment that Marangoni did in 1870, or 1871. Um, and it's not a nice experiment, so for those of you who don't speak German, I'll, 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 I'll explain what he did. He, he'd been doing experiments rather similar to what I did here. Um, in, basically, back in his lab in, in Florence, and he would put a, a surfactant or an alcohol on the surface, and he'd look at the, how quickly the effect spread out over the surface. What he noticed was it was too fast for him to measure with the techniques he had available at that time. Uh, in, in the late 19th century. So if it's too fast to measure on a basin in your lab, what you do, the obvious thing is you go to a bigger basin. Um, so he wrote his, wrote his research proposal, I suppose, and he, he trotted off to, to Paris because, of course, you've got a big basin where you go to, you go to the Tuileries Gardens in Paris. Have you been to the Tuileries Gardens in Paris? They've got these nice, big, round ponds, centimeters across, according to his report. Um, and the material he used was, he used the silver and oil, and he, and he took a bath sponge, it's the varnished one. He took this bath sponge, he soaked in the oil, he was obviously going to make a good cricketer. He hiked this bath sponge out into the middle of one of these um, ponds in the Tuileries Gardens. And then he observed that this circular disturbance was spread out very rapidly. And this wasn't a wave due to gravity. This is faster than that. Circular disturbance that spreads out 
and it's due to these forces in the circuits which are subsequently became named alpha. So he, he was able to that, that way to measure how fast these forces were propagating the circuit. Now, I think he tries to attend thermodynamics to get arrested by the Gondano. He got away with it. And it's interesting, he was, in, he was a, he, this is sort of, you know, a real European, he was an Italian doing the experiments in France and writing them up in Germany. Um, again, one can put some maths behind it, and one can say, uh, just, I know I think probably most of the students here won't have done the calculus, but, but some of the adults will, so ignore this if you, if you, if you wish. But, but you can say that there's a, there's, a, there's a gradient in the surface tension, the surface tension here is different from there, and that has to be matched by a velocity gradient in the bar. So u is the velocity, so the velocity has to be higher, and it has to get smaller and smaller as you go down. So if you've got a stationary liquid and you put in a surface tension gradient, you'll move the liquid around. Now, I'm not actually making apologies for putting up things like this because I just want to use this to remind me just to sort of digress slightly and say that, that you know, come back to the point of, of physical chemistry being a quantitative science. You, if you're actually going to go beyond simple qualitative observations, you need to be able to deal with equations. If you want to deal with equations, you need to have mathematics. So I hope that all of you, if you're thinking of doing chemistry um, at, 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 uh, after you leave, leave school, will at least think very seriously about doing A2 mathematics as well. Um, because you really put yourself at a disadvantage subsequently if your mathematical ability, if your math, it's not so much ability, it's your mathematical knowledge. Many people don't do A2 maths, they're quite good mathematicians, they just do something else instead. Um, but I really think very seriously about doing, about doing A2 maths. Okay, so, what is my effect goes back to Solomon. And this is the, 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 the quotation that's often um, put up. And it comes from Proverbs, which is why it's assigned to traditionally attributed to Solomon. Chapter 23, verse 31 in the Bible, about 950 BC. And he says, Do not gulp down the wine, the strong red wine, and the droplets fall on the side of the cup. Now, what's this got to do with Marangoni? Um, incidentally, Marangoni wasn't the first person to explain this. It was explained by Thompson a few years earlier. Uh, we call, but Thompson's got so many effects named after him already. Uh, that we call this one the Marangoni effect, so don't get too confused. Uh, but this is a picture, this is again taken off the website. Actually, I'm, trying, I'm going to try and demonstrate this in a minute in the overhead. It's actually quite difficult to get the lighting conditions right to, to show it well. But this is showing uh, a wine glass, and looking down from above. And these things here are what are known as tiers of wine, or sometimes as legs of wine. And what's happening is that the liquid is flowing up the side of the glass, is gathering around at the top of the meniscus, it's the top of the area that's wet, and it's forming these tears that then flow back in again. And this will happen, this will keep going, with the strong wine, this is why I'm warning here, you see, this is, this is how you tell whether the wine's strong or not, because you see the legs inside the glass, the tears in the glass. If this is due to, due to Marangoni effects. And you've got to, we saw here that, that ethanol had a lower surface tension than water. That's why the water pulled back when you put a drop of ethanol on it. So you make wine, well, wine, wine is a mixture of alcohol, there's ethanol and water, okay? Um, so, at the edge of the, of the, the wine in the bowl, you put ethanol and water. Now, ethanol is more volatile than water. It evaporates faster. So, as the ethanol evaporates, what's left behind is got more water. It's got more water, so it's got a higher surface tension. So, it's got a higher surface tension. It starts pulling the liquid off the side of the glass. Okay? So, as it evaporates, it gets richer in water and comes up the side of the glass. And this keeps on going until you get so much liquid accumulated up at the top of the glass that gravity wins and it forms droplets and flows back down into the glass. We'll see if we can demonstrate that with some brandy. I guess sometimes I do this, I probably have actually passed wine around at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. 
it's um, probably not approved. Density differences. 
And the basic idea is, is in one of these little cells, you've got a region of low temperature, which generally corresponds to high surface tension, and you've got regions of high temperature and low surface tension. So if you're heating, so what you have is where, where it's cold you, is here, that's got low surface tension, higher surface tension, so the liquid moves from the low surface tension to the high surface tension, so it rises up, and then, then sinks down, where it then gets heated from beneath. Okay, so it gets hotter and hotter, the surface tension goes down, so you've got low surface tension, high temperature again. And these things just will cycle quite happily around. And this type, these things are actually what they call roll cells, and they're actually rather important in chemical engineering, in multi-phase flow problems, where you've got mixing of two liquids. What else I demonstrate here um, is a way you can actually use these Marangoni effects deliberately to move, to move liquids around in a controlled way. And the reason for picking this is this was actually done by a couple of undergraduates here as a sort of an undergraduate project. And it worked, it worked very nicely. It ended up being published, published in Nature, which is, this is probably one of the two premier scientific journals. It's quite nice for undergraduates to get things in there. But the basic idea is if you put oil, and oil is just like red liquid here, and put it on clean glass, it'll spread. Okay? You can do this in the kitchen, the pump, uh, if you put clean glass. And so you get this very, very flat pancake-like problem. If you put oil on a non-stick frying pan, so put it on Teflon, it will beat up, okay, like this. So the question then is, well, what happens if you take glass and you make it behave like Teflon? Well, we can do that. We can take a molecule such as, this is called PFOA, or fluoroxanoic acid. This is a commercial surfactant. Uh, it's used in small quantities, a number of um, uh, uh, processing engineering applications will probably, I suspect, be phased out because this is very persistent in the environment. Uh, it's not biodegradable. Bugs can't eat this, and therefore anything that gets into the environment essentially stays there forever. It's not degraded by ultraviolet light either. So it's pretty, uh, my guess is this will be phased. Will probably be phased out. But it's a useful little molecule, and it, it sticks to glass, and it forms a, mo a, a skin or monolayer, as we call it, one molecule thick with a carboxylic acid binds to the glass surface and the fluorocarbon chain, which is like Teflon, sticks out. So if we have to put a droplet of this on to a glass surface, what happens? Well, let's imagine the droplet's moving to the right. We won't worry about how we start it. Then on the right-hand side, we put clean glass, and oil would like to spread on glass. So it spreads out. Okay, so green is like glass, and this is the Teflon-coated Teflon glass, if you like. But underneath this droplet, this molecule is reacting with the surface. And as it reacts, it turns the, turns the surface from being hydrophilic or oleophilic, water being oil liking, green to red. Okay? So this end of the drop is like Teflon, and the, and, the, and the droplet wants to beat up. So this end is trying to spread, this end is trying to beat up. So what happens? Well, you might think the liquid would just move along. And you can demonstrate that's actually what happens, but not only move along, will actually go up. Here, this is a picture taken out of nature, where you get droplets to flow at several centimeters per second up quite steep inclines. Uh, driven by this, this, this chemical reaction. Okay, it's a bit of fun. But, um, well, there are actually, there are actually practical applications of this sort of thing as well. Um, and it's a Marangoni effect, because what's happening is you're changing the surface tension or the surface free energy at the two edges of the drop. It's high at the right-hand side, it's low at the left-hand side, so if you're going from high energy to low energy, you can convert that chemical energy directly into mechanical motion. Uh, it's actually slightly unusual to convert chemical energy directly into mechanical motion without going through um, for example, for example um, electrical signals and this is just some time lapse focus. This is also something that you can do in school. It works rather nicely 
this is just on a glass rod, it's a sterile tank that I'm using there. You just draw down the flame to give yourself some fresh, clean surface. You put a droplet of this on the end, and you get these droplets to run along. It speeds up, up to about 10 centimeters per second. They'll run along with the fiber. And also, if you had big glass tubes, they'll quite happily run up and down glass tubes as well. And you can use a very simple analysis of what's going on here uh, and get and explain qualitatively, actually, almost quantitatively, what goes on. Okay, that's fine, but I just want to last um, five minutes just go into just uh, a little bit of slightly more detail on a, a practical uh, um, case where Marangoni effects are very important, and that's to do with foams. This is a picture of a foam, and one of the questions that uh, people have asked me for a very long time is why are foams stable? Now, there are actually many answers to that question why foams are stable, um, but one of the mechanisms is to do with the Marangoni effect. And this is a foam here. What we're going to do is we're going to focus up, you can see that in the light. We're going to focus in on a point like this. Here you've got bubbles of air with liquid films. So you've got these planar boundaries, these are called lamellae between the bubbles. And you've got these triangular shaped channels in between where, where these lamellae join. Uh, notice that they're always joined in threes, that you can take nowhere in the foam will you ever find four lamellae joining at a point. Okay? So and they're, they're called plateau borders. And it's through the plateau borders that a foam drains. So the liquid comes out of the lamellae into the plateau borders, and then it percolates down through these plateau borders uh, to, to, to get out, in this case, 40 drops of water. The first question is, well, is to ask, why is it that pure liquids don't foam? And what happens in pure liquid, if we focus in on one of these plateau borders here in the lamellae, is that you get a pressure difference. You can, you can cast your mind back to the beginning of the lecture. We had the, we had the Laplace equation. And that said that if we had a curved surface, we had a pressure difference. This is just a more general form of it. But what it tells us is that the pressure inside the, the bubble, we'll call that P0, and the pressure inside the lamellae will be the same as in the bubble because those lamellae are flat. They're not curved. Okay? But inside the plateau border, we put curved corners. Okay? And the pressure, just from the Laplace's equation, R1 and R2 with the radii of curvature, ends up being the bubble. So if the pressure here is less than in the lamellae, because that's the same as the bubble, this liquid will be driven out or sucked out. It's rather like um, just with a straw you know, and, and a drink. You suck on the straw, you reduce the pressure, you suck the liquid out. So this, this Laplace pressure very rapidly sucks the liquid out of the lamellae and the bubbles collapse. Okay, so Laplace pressure drain. And this will happen typically for pure liquid in, in a few tens of milliseconds. Very, very fast, these will collapse. So why, how can you then get stable foams? Well, if you have surfactants in the system, and these may be biological surfactants in the case of like the air, it might be chemical surfactants in the case of things like uh, washing up liquid, things like that, then you change the surface tension. If you remember we had this relationship that said as the amount of material in the surface got bigger, the surface tension got smaller. Okay, so you're saying, look, big amounts absorb, small surface tension. Okay, so how does that make a difference? Well, let's just assume that in the plateau borders, the values of our surface tension and surface excess are gamma, north, and sigma. Okay. Now, what happens in the lamella? Well, as the liquid flows out of the lamella, you've got liquid flowing that way and liquid flowing that way, it's taking the surface with it. So it's taking all these molecules away from the surface because the surface is flowing with the liquid. The result is that in the middle of the least lamella, gamma, the number of molecules absorbed, is less than it is in the plateau borders. If there's fewer molecules absorbed, the surface tension is bigger. So the surface tension here 
is higher than it is there. And that means you've got a Marangoni force pulling the liquid back into the, into the borders. Okay? So it's a close, so the Laplace pressure is trying to drain them, and the Marangoni forces are trying to stop them from draining. And if this is effective, the, the surface essentially behaves as though the rigidities don't move at all. And then you've got the problem of trying to drain liquid out between two solid, flat surfaces. And that's extremely slow. Okay, that's an extremely slow process. And this is one of the dominant mechanisms that stabilizes foams, both in liquid mixtures and also in, in, in systems with surfactants. Now, just to finally, I'd just like to give one more example, which shows a little bit of some of the beauty that you can get from, from Marangoni effects. Um, this is actually first came across about uh, eight or nine years ago in, in New Scientist, and it was a column in the back of the last word. I think, it's, I think it's still there, where people were writing questions, and other people try and write them with answers. And this was one that was written in, which I thought I'd give it a try. And it, it's a very nice example of Marangoni effects. It, it actually stimulates some of the research papers published in Physica. Uh, a few years back to try and explain in more detail. But this is just a picture of what happens if you put cream on Tia Maria. Tia Maria is a coffee liqueur, as uh, those who are sweet tooth, it's a stick and stuff. What happens if you put cream on Tia Maria? Something you to try on your uh, of age. series of little donut-like cells. And I don't know how easy it is for you at the back to see, but each of these cells is spinning around several times a second. So you've got a little donut of, of, of cream, and the, and the Timoria is spinning around the outside um, at, at several times a second. And this will keep going for a few minutes if you leave it to run. And this is being driven, it's actually rather similar to the, the tears of wine in way, and one of the things is driving the evaporation of the alcohol is getting started. But then you have surface tension differences between the liquid, the cream, and the tin maria. And those, those, those differences set up these, these, these so-called rolled cells. Now, the fact that you can cream them means you can see them. But these types of phenomena are actually happening at a lot of interfaces between liquids. You just can't see them, so you haven't got the cream there to visualize it. And quite important is enhancing mixing of liquids, which would otherwise be very slow. But it's also, if you are sitting waiting for someone to join you in a bar and uh, you're a bit older, uh, it's a good thing to order and keep yourself amused uh, if your date is late. So I think on, on that note, we'll um, stop. And so uh, just to show you that, uh, well, this is just my college woman, I'm just giving you a pretty picture of Oxford to look at. Um, but I just like to, this is what I really want to say. I'm, I'm quite happy to take any, any questions or any thoughts that people have that might have been stimulated by, by this talk. Thank you.